Welcome to CineLit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh, and I am joined by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. Say hello, Daryl. Hello. <laughs> and we are also joined again by uh, Rebecca Taylor. Say hello, Rebecca. Hi. Hi, everyone. Fantastic. So we are going to talk about the director, Steve McQueen, today to coincide with the release of his new TV series, Anthology Show, that's coming out in November on the BBC iPlayer. So that should be should be a fun discussion. Uh, when I proposed doing Steve McQueen, I, for some reason I thought he'd done more movies. <laughs> but he's only done four feature films. So it's like, okay, well, that's, that's manageable. We may, maybe we'll be able to do this podcast in under, in under an hour today. <laughs> who, who knows? There's, stranger things have happened. Okay, so should we, should we just crack off in, in, in chronological order? Let's start with Steve McQueen. I'm going to say, uh, was his first uh, debut feature was uh, Hunger, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Obviously, he'd had a very long and very su- very successful career as a contemporary artist, video artist. Yeah, uh, he yeah. He won the Turner Prize in the late 90s in the same year as Tracy Emin had her unmade bed. That didn't win. He won. But obviously, no one was speaking about his... She, his, got, she got all the attention. She absolutely did get all the attention. Uh, but he won that year, and he, so he was a well-established contemporary video artist who then moved into feature films with Hunger and yeah. what a debut I know, I think before before we get on to talking about his individual films I think it's, it, it ought to be stressed that I think he brings his, um, his, his video art style to his movies and I think this is something we'll talk about as we go on each film, you know, I, I like looking at how filmmakers work all sort of ties together, and um, uh, I think he's got trademarks within cinema that are, are sort of he's sort of made his own like um, he uses long held shots quite often he uses extremely long takes as well which is which is different you know he'll he'll use sort of held static shots but he will also do long dramatic takes and also long dialogue scenes and i think all of this sort of stems from uh you know, when you're watching his films, you suddenly get sort of 20 minutes in or half an hour in, and you're suddenly presented with like a 15 minute, almost like something that would have been in an art installation or something. And uh, and yet he's getting away with that in commercial cinema, which is brilliant. So, mm. uh, and I think it's important to talk about that before we talk about his films in general, because I think his 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 artistic vision sort of impacts on his work as a feature filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. What do you reckon, Becky? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what I was going to go on to say was just that actually that's the only Steve McQueen film I haven't seen, Hunger. Right. He's yeah. he's one of those filmmakers that I, I feel, when, when I first started, when I first watched his features, I wasn't as familiar with his artwork uh, prior to this, but I had that 70s vibe from him, that he was a, he was a director akin to a Martin Scorsese, akin to those, sort of like, where... where their visions of the films very very much was, was so strong that in his debut feature he could pretty much make the film he wanted to make yeah and yeah. there's no sort of like paying your dues or anything like that when <laughs> coming through film he started off with hunger and he started off exactly where he wanted to start off in in film and 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 yeah what a debut yeah there's a, there's a lot of talk at the moment because the the bfi are bringing out a box set of um old um play play for today shows from the bbc 
from from the 70s and early 80s and there's a lot of debate about you know would would play for today be something that that you could sort of revive and bring back into into the modern era and i think hunger or it's 12 years old now hunger but it's it's a it's a modern movie and that really really does play like like an old bbc play for today it would have fitted right on tv in sort of 1981 82 had it been made then and it would have been very controversial had it been made then too you know i think it's not it's not not controversial when it was made yeah but but yeah it really does fit that and that i think again ties in with that sort of 70s mold of the artist who is absolutely uncompromising and just goes out and makes the film that he wants to well maybe that's coming full loop with his new show small acts which is effectively like play for today i think so i I think he's he's almost like a one-man revival of that we'll (laughs) we'll we'll see with that show but i i think everything i've heard and read about it suggests that it is going to be in that sort of arena Mm. Mm. yeah there's the anthology series because obviously during lockdown there was the alan bennett remakes of talking heads and yeah it seems like something that they're that the bbc thing are are bringing back sort of the anthology series of the of the 70s and things yeah yeah i mean he's he's got three Mm. of five i believe that have, have already debuted at festivals already lovers rock uh, Mangrove and Red, White and Blue have yeah, all played and they've, at various they've been presented as, as feature films yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah they've played at, at film festivals. Mm-hmm. So, And weren't they going to also play at Cannes if it wasn't cancelled? Oh, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. I mean, he's... Yeah, I think he's a, he's a name enough director, I think, that, that a showcase of Steve McQueen, <laughs> brand-new Steve McQueen, would not go amiss. Yeah. Like, uh, the notably snooty Cannes for their... They don't like TV, do they? <laughs> <laughs> They had to have a big exception and, and, and call Twin Peaks' uh, 18 episode, 16 episode series. 18, yeah. It's eight, yeah. 18 episode series of the, new, of the new Twin Peaks as a film. And I can see uh, this being the same. They, <laughs> they present this and film festivals have been presenting yeah. it as though it's five new movies. Yeah, yeah. And they're going on the BBC, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's Country and then Prime. What an amazing um, advertisement for the BBC iPlayer, though. You know, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> well. Let's move on. Let's move on to Hunger then. So it's one Becky hasn't seen, but we we screened it in when we first opened in 2008 here in Derby. It was released within about a, a month of us opening, and it was one of the very first big releases that we showed um, on our screens. You know, uh, when we opened, and it, it it's a difficult watch. The story of um, Bobby Sands and his hunger strike. He was in prison for being involved in the IRA bombings and went on a hunger strike and very well reported case very big news story of its time and dramatized in 2008's hunger yeah i guess it's a great it is it, it is a great film i guess it's really built around michael fassbender's amazing performance yeah yeah the the, the one the one sort of trope of uh, steve's cinema that i didn't mention before was his partnership with fassbender and mm. Fassbender's maybe gone a little bit off the boil now, and he wasn't. He wasn't in uh, Steve's last movie, which we'll talk about later. But I think he's not getting the parts that he was sort of five, ten years ago. And um, I think his partnership with McQueen was really potent. And I think you were getting his very, very best cinema work there. I think it was a it was a good relationship for Michael Fassbender. I think he was really being challenged 
by these roles and uh, and yeah hunger's the first one and right off the bat you've got you've got a director actor partnership there that is is looking really solid and and um something that's really potent and got real potential and and fassbender's sort of unusual casting as bobby sands because he doesn't particularly look like him but i think he, he really inhabits the the part and gets and gets the character and gets what the um the maze prison protests were all about the film's great it's so unconventional as i say it's it's i was talking earlier about how mcqueen approaches his films like he approaches his video installations and so on and hunger's almost like a sort of feature length depiction of that you know representation of that it's such an unconventional movie because it focuses on the 1981 um, protests the the blanket protests the dirty protests and um, ultimately the hunger strike but in doing that, it covers the whole history of the Irish Troubles and it sort of pinpoints this one incident, but it sort of comments on the entire history going back to sort of 1916 or whenever, you know. And, and um, it's, it's a great little microcosm of the relationship between the Irish people and, and the British Parliament. Um, the, the movie makes you despise Margaret Thatcher Ever, ever more you know it's uh I, i'm not getting into that but uh i i could i could talk all day about that but uh yeah it, it, she doesn't come out of it well you know the conservative party the british government the establishment don't come out of this well it's it's fine to have that we had the iron lady which was the glorification of maggie maggie thatcher so we, we, there's, we're balance, this balance yeah. here yeah <laughs> yeah what what steve mcqueen does in the movie is he focuses on the day-to-day basics of the prison cell. You know, we only have, I think we only have two scenes outside the prison which involve the uh, officer, Officer Lowen, played by Stuart Graham. We see him at the start of the film getting up in the morning and talking to his wife and then checking under his car for, for bombs as though it's routine, you know, that's something he obviously does every day. And then there's a scene later on where he visits his mother in a nursing home. Other than that... It's, it's all set in the prison. And the, the characters, including Bobby Sands and depictions of other um, IRA members, they're almost background figures in the story because what McQueen focuses on is the, the routine of day-to-day life in the prison and the routine as well of the protests and how these two sort of combine together. And you get um, you get incidents uh, which are sort of audience challenging in a way. Like the, I think the most famous one is the shot of a prison officer come cleaner, who's sort of brushing piss and bleaching the the, the corridor between the cells, and he's right at the back of the frame, and he sort of pushes his broom, his brush forward and forward and forward, and cleans all this stuff up. Um, and McQueen just holds it for three minutes until he gets right into the foreground of the shot. And that could be tedious and boring, but I think the fact that he's someone who's worked in art installation and worked in video art makes that so meaningful and such an important scene in the film. And I can see some viewers being turned off by it, but I, I, I thought it was absolutely riveting and really 
made comments on all kinds of things within the the situation of the story. Well, like you say, he, he does like those long shots. Um, in, in fact, it's a 17-minute unbroken shot in Hunger, um, which I think for a debut, <laughs> again, a debut feature, it's very yeah. daring. But then, again, when you look back on it and you think, well, actually, he's not he's not a first-time director. Mm. In many ways, he's not. Sure. And, uh, and I think he's, these long takes are something that he's comfortable with as an artist. So, again, it's not a challenge for him. This is something that he's done before. All, the only difference is he's now bringing it into the, into the middle of a feature film. Um, but what performances in that scene as well? Liam Cunningham and Fassbender mm. playing the, the, the priest who comes in to talk to uh, Bobby Sands. And, um, and this is when Sands actually tells him that the protest is going to be elevated. It's not just going to be the dirty protest anymore, the smearing of the... Uh, the, the, the cell walls with sort of foul substances, it's now going to be elevated and they're actually going to die for their cause. And the priest has to sort of react to that. It's wonderfully played. Not only is it a 17-minute take, it's actually followed by, immediately followed by a five-minute take of Fassbender solo, mm. still talking to the priest. So in total, you get 22 minutes of this. Absolutely extraordinary. And to put that in the middle of a feature film... Is is so so brave. Well, I think I think ultimately you put on screen something that's going to be interesting and keep the audience's attention. And in that scene particularly, nothing is more riveting than watching those two act. Absolutely. So having the camera unbroken for seventeen minutes is not for me is not really a chore at that point. No, no. You know. Well, it's so well done, and he's so confident in doing it, and, he, and his actors. I mean, actors love doing this sort of thing because they feel like they're on stage, don't they? And every actor wants to be on stage. So uh, um, they, they just get into it. Apparently, they, they, did, they only did five takes, I've read of that, so then used the best one. I, I would imagine they, they just see that as rehearsal. You know, they just see that as glorified rehearsal. And um, I bet they all love doing that. And, and it shows on screen because it is... You know, we've used the word already. It's absolutely riveting. Mm. Becky, are we making this sound appealing to you? Is is it a film you're going to go and see? Yeah, well, to be honest, I do have it on DVD. I just never got round to watch it, obviously, because it's quite a tough subject. Um, I don't know, a nice party, but... party Saturday night film. It's lovely, you know. <laughs> but I, I must say, I have always wanted to see it because I am, I've always been a fan of Michael Fassbender and I've also obviously um steve mcqueen um so i sort of went back to look at his other films i think steve mcqueen didn't come fully on my radar until 12 years a slave so i went back and brought all of his other dvds so but i have yet to watch hunger yeah that's, yeah. that's interesting because obviously being having been programming cinema since like 2008 2009 He's he's been the one guy that's been there throughout my film programming career. You know, obviously from very early when we opened up here, we had Hunger. A couple of years later, a few years later, we had Shame, and then Twelve Years a Slave, and then Widows a few years ago. Now, if yeah. he, if he made yeah. more films, it'd make your job a lot easier. It'd make my job a lot easier. Yeah, but you I'm hoping that Diminishing Returns, though, whether if he makes too many films, I mean, maybe he needs that time 
to uh, to gather so. his forces. I think yeah. so. Yeah. So let's move on to the next film then. In, in, in his, his career, he did a film called Shame, which I think mm. is my favourite of his films. Me too. Oh, there really? You go. It was my it was my film of the year. The year. Same with me. Same with me. And say rarely, me and Daryl are on the same wavelength here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was absolutely my favourite film of the year. I, I found it entirely engrossing. I thought it evoked. Um, it very much felt like it was about sex addiction, but it felt more like Taxi Driver. Yeah. It felt yeah. like showing this, the, the griminess, the sleaziness of the city yeah. now and, and rather it's a, it's than 1970s. A, it's a very cold film as well mm. in, in the sort of David Cronenberg style, I think. You know. But right, the opening shot is fascinating because it links this character with Bobby Sands. The unbroken yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the film again starts with a, a long static shot of Michael Fassbender, naked from the waist up, lying in bed, just staring into space, and it's held and held and held and held. And other than the fact that it's taking place in a sort of pristine apartment rather than a sort of shitty prison cell, it could be from Hunger. Mm-hmm. In fact, one thing I'd like to say about those two films: they could almost swap titles. You know, you could almost call hunger shame in reflection of the shame of the British establishment sort of thing. And you could almost call this hunger in terms of the character's sex addiction. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think definitely. they're interestingly titled. Yeah. Well, I think they both have characters that are in prisons. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, <laughs> as, and it forms a trilogy, then, with 12 Years a Slave, sure. I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Which we, we can talk about when we get onto that movie. But uh, he's, he is, he's, 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 he's locked in a prison of his own, his own mind sort of thing yeah. and his own desires. So, Becky, when I said it's my favourite film, I heard a, a yelp of surprise there. <laughs> why, do you, why, why did you feel that it was not, not, not your favourite film from the sound of it? I don't know, actually. Now thinking about it a little bit harder, I wouldn't say it's my favourite. But, yeah, just because it's slightly, yeah, unconventional and sort of um, obviously on purpose, remo- you know, removed. You don't have that relationship with the character is sort of distant but obviously he's supposed to be but yeah it's not my favorite but but that's why i seem to see shot but yeah <laughs> well I, I the thing i found really in, in, interesting about shame when i watched it it felt like a director fully fully in control of the camera fully in control of the, the production and on top form if that makes a sense yeah i felt absolutely. like every single scene I had to watch every single scene because yeah. there's yeah. going to be something here in this scene that, yeah. I, that I need to that I need to watch yeah. to understand. I, I think that's typified in the film by the way he shoots sex scenes because there are a lot of sex scenes in the film, and yet Very. it's it's. Uh, uh, I don't know if Becky or yourself agree with this, Adam, but for for me, it's it's not at all a sort of titillating film. It's not erotic, and because the character doesn't see sex like that, he he's appalled by what's happening to him um he he doesn't want to be living the life that he's living and i I think mcqueen and fassbender both get that across in the film and so when when he actually shoots sex scenes especially the, the the sort of threesome towards the end is is just 
it's it, a lot of it shot in close up, but it's not it's not close ups of, of the bits that um, your voyeur might want to see. You know, yeah, we're not it's, talking Paul yeah, Verhoeven not, here. Not know? at all. Not at all. It's 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 close ups of people's faces, almost in agony, you know, and wondering what they're doing there. It's close ups of sort of shoulders and and um, you know bits of the body that aren't in the least bit erotic, you know. And, and yeah. um, it's just a brilliant way to sort of shoot that in in a film that has got this 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 topic. I can't think of another film that's that's tackled sex in this way at all. No, I mean, I, I guess Lars von Trier had a crack at it with Nymphomania Part yeah. One and Two, particularly Part Two uh, more than Part One. But he veers on the on the titillation side. Yeah, I was going to say I might have a little bit of a question mark of us then. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, this sounds good. Um, and I agree. It's not. It's not actually a film where where I found him particularly attractive. Um, so yeah, I think maybe that might be why it's not my favourite. In the sense that I was just disappointed. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I found more actually uh, Carrie Mulligan's character more um, interesting in the film and complex. Their relationship I found was more interesting and sort of. Yeah, I think they're they're sort of they're sort of two two sides of the same coin almost. You know, they're almost one character, and and yeah. um, they they have got this brother sister relationship that sometimes suggests it's going to go a little bit further. But then by the end of the film, you know, they're 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 almost the same person. You know, and and they they're sort of thinking each other's thoughts almost, and and uh, it's without without sort of giving away what happens throughout the film and what happens towards the end. But, uh, yeah, I think they're two brilliant performances. Again, again, Carrie Mulligan sort of disappeared in, in recent years as well. And, and um, she's so, so good in this. And, again, she gets her own long take, which she has to handle very, very sort of intensely, where she's she's singing this sort of breathy version of New York, New York in, in a bar as a sort of yeah. torch singer. And the camera, again, is just held on her face as she sings this this sort of agonising version of of the old Frank Sinatra favourite, and um, uh, again this is McQueen sort of playing with with what cinema is and playing with the form of it and filming something that you could you could put in an art gallery. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I think I think you're right. I think she's absolutely fantastic. I don't think she's surpassed. This role, never, never, uh, and yeah, and she's done some good, some good roles since then. I mean, she she was due to be in a film uh, earlier this year, but that's been put back to later this year. Um, most promising woman, most is it? promising woman. That's right, yeah. Um, which apparently, I mean, you've seen that one, haven't you, Becky? Yeah, I saw it, and it's yeah, it's again very unconventional. Um, basically, it's sort of a rape revenge film. But she was phenomenal in it. But I actually saw a screen of it earlier this year, and I'd say it was one of my favourite films that I've seen this year. Right, yeah. Because yeah. she, she, I find, I think her and particular Michael Fassbender as well, because they are so attractive. <laughs> I think that is kind of difficult once they become famous, and they become famous through these kind of roles, which they both did. Arguably, I mean, Kerry Mulligan maybe through other stuff, but they both yeah. seem to have an interest in making these kind of films. And I think when they get inside that inside the business, they're not being put into those kind of films for like two or three years after they break. Mm. They get put in, in mainstream Hollywood 
films, I guess. Yeah, she's looking, in period costume, looking attractive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Here, uh, yeah. Cause, you were they, fantastic they, in that really yeah. gritty yeah. art house movie. What size uh, bustier do you fit in for our costume for our period costume sure, drama that sure. we're going to shove you in next? You and, know, and so. to be to be fair, they both look very, very attractive in shame, but you wouldn't want to see their insides, mm-hmm. would you? You know, you don't. You don't want to see the inside of their minds. No, and I think that's what they're interested in as yeah, actors. Yeah, it feels yeah. like that's what they're interested in, yeah. particularly at that time in their careers. Yeah. Well, Becky, you say, you say this new film is a rape revenge drama, and it, it yeah. it'll be a rare case of an actress getting involved in something like this and it not being their most harrowing film because I think she's been through that in the Steve McQueen movie. I, I think what what she goes through in Shame is 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 just terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think most promising woman is is, is that levels of uh, <laughs> of intensity, isn't it? More a black comedy as well, thrown in there. Yeah, it's done as a dark comedy, but yeah, the undertones are around the uh, in America the uh, rape scandal in universities and colleges. So that's sort of what it's mainly set around. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's um, I think it will get people talking once it finally is um, screened. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just glad to know she's still around because I I've, I've not seen Carrie in anything for a while and uh, I, I thought she'd sort of gone off the radar. Um, the other actress I think to, to, who's worth a mention in Shame is um, I don't know how to pronounce her surname actually Nic- Nicole Behari or Behari. Um, yeah, who's yeah. who's in? She's in Miss Juneteenth at the moment, which is which is playing now. Okay. And uh, um, but she again, she gets a very very long dialogue scene in a restaurant with Fassbender, which is another one of Steve's long long takes and long um, uh, film dialogue um, sequences with with a waiter sort of chipping in as well, sort of coming in every now and then, which I, I guess is sort of improv, you know, where it does have that sort of feel to it. And again, what an absolutely brilliant brilliant scene is completely riveting and you've, you've there's another scene in the movies where you in the movie where you see these characters having sex as well not not the way not the waiter although you know it could be that kind of movie but uh, um but nicole and fassbender um uh, have a scene in a hotel room uh, which which doesn't go well um again you know not at all titillating or or appealing to to people that are looking for that sort of thing it's it's a very cold rather disastrous sex scene um then they they have this long dialogue um scene in the restaurant and again like the like the priest scene in uh, in hunger it is you can't take your eyes off it it's absolutely riveting yeah um a, a fascinating film um kind of a departure for the writer Abby Morgan, who wrote this one, who also wrote the aforementioned Iron Lady um, <laughs> and Suffragette. Um, this is much more... Um, I, yeah, I can't, I can't compare that this to anything else that she's done, really. You look at her sort of like... I mean, she did, apart from maybe sex traffic. Yeah, she yeah. she did. Do do you know do you know what the what the sort of process was on that Adam? Was that was that a, a, a script that was written with McQueen in mind? It's or? co-written by Steve McQueen, right, so I think right. he wrote with with the writer. Okay, I don't know how much was improvised. I don't feel like McQueen's an improvised guy. I don't no, know. I, I think it's it's just in this one scene with the waiter sort of popping in and out has got that feel to it. But uh, but yeah, I think you're right. He's he's very much a director who I think really wants to be in control. Yeah, absolutely, and, and is and and is incredibly skilled in doing that. So he's a British director. 
Steve McQueen. He's done a film about the IRA, which I can I can see being a major part of his upbringing, as, as it was with anyone in, in England, Ireland, during the 70s, 80s and 90s. I, IRA in Ireland was a big part of that kind of thing. He transposes his next film into New York, and it's the seedy underbelly of New York, Sex Addiction. And then we move on to his next film, 12 Years a Slave, arguably the film that he's most known for now, which mm. is um, set during the um, plantation slave days uh, in American history. Why, why do you think he went for this one? Because it feels like it's not, he's not drawing from his own experiences with, with these films anymore. I, I guess, I guess that it's simply a story that, that massively appealed to him and, and maybe he's heard tales passed down through generations of his own family about, about treatment that they've undergone and and maybe it's some it's something that he can relate to experiences in his own life and wanted to sort of make that comparison we've talked already about how it sort of forms a loose prison trilogy with you've got bobby sands in the maze prison you've got the character in 12 years a slave who's who's sort of taken into slavery and you've got michael fassbender who's got his sex addiction and he's sort of trapped in his own mind and his own body and um and uh, I, I think Twelve Years a Slave. I, th- I think it's actually um, McQueen's most conventional movie. Mm. Um, it's it's a bit of a departure in that sense. There's not as much of his usual style in there. It's a lot more conventional. Um, but I just guess that the theme and the subject matter and the story appealed to him. And I I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he also linked it with his his earlier two films and thought well yeah let's let's do another prison story of a sort what did you think mm. 12 years slave becky the biggest thing that i i would say what i liked about well likes not the right word but what i i thought was different to other films around slavery and the slave trade is that it doesn't particularly michael fassbender's character in the sense of He's evil, but they make him human, which in a way is more scary because other slave films I've watched, you know, they create the slave owners being evil and devil and, you know, pushes you to have those emotions. But what makes it more scary about 12 Years a Slave is that everybody there, the the characters are more human. So you have more of a relationship with them and sort of, I kind of felt with 12 Years a Slave, like, oh, my gosh, you know, I could imagine what it was like in those days where some other slave films I've watched, you know, they've sensationalised it a bit and pushed those emotions, I think of the right word, but pushed those emotions onto the audience, you know, to feel this certain way or to feel that certain way about things. But what made it more scary was the sense that, literally anything could happen you were you know that that it was just so unstable the environment and everything throughout the film just changes you know and that's how I would you know can imagine it was like in those days I don't particularly like films around the slavery just because I feel like there's other stories that can be told but if I was going to in this way recommend a slave film it would be 12 years slave because it was the one I felt the most emotional about. 
It is quite an interesting one but you just mentioned there about like you know of all the slave trade films <laughs> as if it's like a subgenre of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, I, but you're I, right. Um, I, I actually came up with the term. I, I, I think it was when uh, Django Unchained came out, and I ri- I wrote something on that somewhere, and I um, I came up with the term plantation exploitation at that time. And I think yeah. Becky's right in saying that um, if 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 you call these films plantation exploitation, I don't think that Twelve Years a Slave fits under that banner because I think it's more serious I think um, uh, I mean obviously you've got things like um, the the classic being the the TV series Roots which Mm. has been done in well it it was done as an original series then a sequel and then there was the recent remake Um, but then you've got more frivolous stuff like Django Unchained maybe like uh, Russ Mayer's Black Snake and things like that and other films going back to the 60s and 70s that uh, Mandingo and things like that, you know, being um, uh, taking a sort of more exploitative sort of look at this sort of thing. And you're absolutely right, Becky, in saying that uh, Fassbender, Benedict Cumberbatch too, Benedict Cumberbatch's character is actually quite nice in this movie. And yet he's, he's still a slave trader and a slave master, you know. And um, even the Brad Pitt character who sort of comes in towards the end, who's like the, the nice white guy, there's even sort of underlying tendencies there, you know. And, and um, all of the white characters have got sort of nuance and they've got shading to them. And they do occasionally show a, a, a certain modicum of respect but ultimately, they're there to sort of tell people to sort of whip other people and to sort of abuse them and send them out into the fields. Mm. Um, and again, I, I think I think that would be part of the appeal to to uh, Steve McQueen in taking on a, a slaver sort of subject matter would be that it ties in with the, the themes of his other movies. But it's a more conventional, sort of more obvious film for him to do. Again, I, I think I think he. he achieves his his long takes that he loves to do one thing he does particularly well in the movie is um he he does static close-up shots of um of nature you'll occasionally get a, a lingering shot of like a flower or a plant or a leaf or a branch of a tree or something he uses these absolutely brilliantly not, not in the way that someone like Terence Malick does. I, you know, I, you, you may disagree, but I, I don't like the way that Malick has sort of introduced this into cinema, and um, and it's become like a Malick trademark. Of, oh, we'll we'll show a, a, a ladybird on a blade of grass or something. You know, I think McQueen does it in Twelve Years a Slave as punctuation. What what you'll get is a horrific scene of somebody being whipped or chained or abused or something or kicked around, and then he'll cut to a shot of a flower and he'll hold that for thirty seconds or a minute, and I think it's 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 a means of bringing the audience down. I think it's there as a sort of easement into the next scene, um, a, a, a sort of controlling mechanism to say, okay, I've just shown you the most horrific thing that I possibly can. Now, here's something... I'll, I'll show you something nice while you think about what you've just seen and while you sort of mull that over in your own mind. And there, there are moments like that in his other movies as well, in the two preceding films. And I think here, he, he, he does it to perfection. I think he does it absolutely brilliantly. And, OK, he's doing static shots of nature in the way that other directors have done, but I think he invests them with, with a meaning and he invests them with um, a sense of 
offering something to the audience and it's mm. also a means of making the audience sort of think about the previous two or three scenes that they've just watched which might be absolutely appalling and show the absolute worst of humanity so it, obviously it was a very successful movie winning many Oscars and lots of critical acclaim but it was also not without controversy and without backlash particularly around the I guess casting of a lot of black British actors rather than black American actors which seems to be a ongoing trend in American cinema at the moment where I mean a lot of, a lot of I guess it's not just in, in terms of black and white but like a lot of British actors are going to America and playing American roles. Yes. I suppose Steve's defence there would be that he, he's, he's a British director and they're the people that he knows. It's but, not a good uh, enough defence, Daryl. Well, <laughs> it's not a good enough defence. That's not a good yeah. enough defence. He's, he's, a, he's a director making a film about the American uh, slave trade and yet he chose to cast a predominantly um, a British cast there. Yeah, I, I can see why American actors are annoyed because, to be honest, I would be annoyed, you know, if there was a, a story about the black British, you know, experience or something that happened, you know, in black British history and it was played by Americans, I would say the same thing. I think that's more we need to look at the British film industry and think, well, we need to create more stories about, you know, the black British experience that these actors can can um, be in you know they they're having to go over to America in order to get roles and that's like the wider issue just with our our, our film industry yeah, um, hope, hopefully small acts has, has sort of redressed that balance a little bit yeah yeah you know and there's a lot of black British stories that can be told so it's kind of a bit of a shame but I understand both sides of the coin I can understand why African American actors are annoyed because it's their experience, their stories, you know, um, such as Harriet Tubman and, and Solomon, but also understand the black British actors in the sense of we don't tell those stories. Well, at that time, we didn't tell those stories that much. So they had to go over to America to, to find work and just generally to find work in the film industry. It doesn't particularly have to be black stuff, you know, no, those no. things. You think about it, currently Batman and Superman are both played by British actors. You know? yeah. So, you know, two icons of American pop culture uh, being played by yeah. Brits. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that that's a, a completely different discussion about lack of opportunities in Britain and sort of the way that we, yeah, do things. And then also as well, it's Hollywood. You know, they're going to go over there. Yeah. And all that said, though... The British actors that are in this movie don't have to do a good job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've got um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, who has links to Derby, his family yes. in Derby. Yeah. Um, so he's Derby. That's how we that's how we do these things now. If you've got any sort of link to Derby, <laughs> you're from Derby. <laughs> Welcome back, you know. Uh, but yeah, Chiwetel Ejiofor does an amazing job in the lead role. Yeah, um, always Always been an actor that you feel is waiting for, for was was better than the roles he was being given. I think so. And then some what, of this what a along. difficult part this is as well, because you're almost playing two characters. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's this sort of well-to-do, free man, you know, um, successful businessman, 
and suddenly like that he's he's a slave it's it's not your usual um slave story no. he's 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 not contakinte he's not been kidnapped from africa he's not been born on the plantation he's 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 a guy who's sort of respected around town he's known he's successful he's moneyed and then suddenly he's a slave and it's different it's not it, it isn't the sort of standard routine it's not roots you know yeah no i was having this conversation recently with a friend about um when you watch some of these films because the, the experience is such a powerful story you feel like there's been loads of movies made about it so you, like i think you said earlier becky it's like it's not just another slave trade film exactly. it's not just another plantation film and i'm thinking well even if it was how many realistically how many slave trade films are made there's still not that many there's more war films made every year yeah, there's more yeah. films about world war Two that are being made yet people don't make the accusation that that that, that genre has been run into the ground yet that does get leveled at the films that are set during the slave trade which i find you know, i find fascinating because i i felt like that i was watching the thought i feel like i've seen this before and it's like i have but that doesn't mean it can be told again mm. in the same way as like you get World War Two films told over and over again. It's a similar experience. Sure, and and this is a very different story to any that we've seen before. Yeah. So it's almost like a, a, a fresh approach to to the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. And it adds a new level of obscenity to it. It's awful enough that that people were sort of taken from their homeland and transported to other countries in ships, and abused by by white slave masters and so on and sold. For, for this to happen to someone who's actually um, achieved the American dream and is then taken into, into slavery is... Um, maybe that's something that a white audience can identify with a little bit more. Yeah, and, I was about and, to say that, and, yeah. But, it's, but it, it, I'm not saying it adds a new level of, of, of horror to the situation because I, th- I think this, it's, it's, it's something that's removed from... from the roots experience it's it's uh, this is this is a different way of telling the story and of course it's all based in truth and based on an actual account written by the the um the man himself you know so uh, i think i think it definitely adds that layer of being able to put yourself in the character's shoes yeah you know what would happen if if i was taken from my life and as i say i think that can apply to to all races anybody watching that film will will think that yeah but that's what I would say about it in the sense of the human aspect. I haven't watched any other slave trade film where I feel like, oh, my gosh, this, you know, I can really see this properly happening to me. OK, so moving on to uh, Stephen Queen's next film, uh, Widows, which was a another a, a unusual choice for him here, I guess, here, adapting a, a British television series, slightly more mainstream movie. It's a car chase. It's got a heist movie. It's got explosions. It's got, you know, a heist movie planning, which is always great. Yeah, what do we think to Widows? I liked that it um, had a leading lady instead of a leading man in Michael Fassbender, and it was Viola Davis, who I'm a huge fan of, so... Um, at the time, she'd just done Fences and she was on the TV with How to Get Away with Murder. I thought her performance was brilliant in the film. Um, yeah, my only criticism would be that I kind of wanted there to be more stories about the other widows. But yeah, I think I'm being a bit picky there. <laughs> it's an, it is an unusual uh, left turn, as we've talked, Daryl, before uh, earlier today. Like it, His first three films kind of form a trilogy of, of incarceration and prison type movies. And also 
are heavily male-centric. And with this film, he definitely goes off in a different direction with female-centric movie. It's not a heist movie. It's not a, a prison movie. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's certainly a left turn. Yeah, well. as uh, as a confirmed auteurist, you know, I, I, I love the way that Steve's first three feature films all connect together and they've all got these sort of interconnected themes. And uh, this sort of stands apart from that. And I, I love the film for what it is. Uh, it's a great version of a great TV show. But I sort of wonder... What, what's in it for him? You know, why has he been interested in this? And why, why hasn't he made something that is sort of connected with the ideas and concepts that he's used previously? And it doesn't quite fit for me, as I'm, I'm someone who loves it when a filmmaker comes along and uh, you sort of know what you're going to get and you know what themes to look out for. And suddenly there's this curveball thrown in. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it is definitely an about turn from what he's done previously. Um, but maybe that's what he was going for. Maybe that's maybe that's a deliberate decision. Is that again a switch from very male-centric storylines to a, a very very upfront female-focused movie with an astonishing performance by Viola Davis? Yeah, she's uh, she's an absolute powerhouse in it. And uh, uh, Becky was saying how the other actresses and the other female characters don't figure quite as much in this and I, I I think the intention was that they would and I think they they give good performances and the characters are well drawn and well written and um, the, the the way the film plays out has a lot for them to do and they, they get sort of satisfying conclusions at the end but Viola Davis is such a force of nature in this movie it is one of the great performances in cinema in recent years that she almost sort of unbalances the whole thing she's so good that she makes everyone else look as though they're not there and that's not entirely to the film's detriment for me because I think it's it's good that there's a sort of forceful character but this isn't the story of a central gangland figure and and her female gang you know they're all supposed to be equals and yeah it it, it maybe doesn't quite play like that yeah it's widows not widow <laughs> so you know <laughs> act a bit less good viola yeah yeah i don't think you can no it is an interesting point because it, it does feel like it's separate to those first three for many other reasons we already discussed but Steve's, Steve McQueen's back on script writing duty here. He has co-written with uh, Gillian Flynn of uh, Gone Girl Authorship. Um, so it, he's obviously had a, more of a hand in the scripting of this. Than he, I mean, for instance, he didn't, he didn't script any of uh, 12 Years a Slave, you know, officially. You know, yeah, it was written yeah. by John Ridley. So Whereas, it's, clearly, it's clearly an important project for him. Then. Exactly. It's something that he sees as fitting into his scheme of things, even if I don't. Yeah, know? exactly. So he, he, he feels like he's obviously invested enough to take a screenwriting credit on it. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Becky? I think it was just a project that probably appealed to him. I don't think he necessarily w- wanted it to link to his other films. And also that it's kind of refreshing to have a heist movie that's so female orientated. Um, it, it, they tend to, the ones that spring to mind with me, they tend to, if there are, fe- you know, a female character in it, it's always along a mouse, but the, 
the um, this is very uh, you know a, a female driven film. Mm. Um, yeah, it, yeah it, let's, it, let's not forget set it off uh, late nineties uh, high school. Oh, yeah. yeah, let's not forget yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, you, there's. No, not many spring to mind. No, yeah, I, I'm being picky there. I can I can pick I can pick out one in the last thirty years. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> now we've, we've mentioned we've mentioned small acts already a couple of times, and uh, you were suggesting Adam that uh, maybe we're in a new phase of McQueen's career, and maybe Widows um, starts that off that perhaps. He's he's done with the incarcerated males, either trapped in a cell or trapped on a plantation or trapped in their own body sort of thing. And widows and small acts maybe represent the start of a new phase where he's looking at sort of black character storylines and he's looking at the the interest that a lot of filmmakers seem to have at the moment in messing around and blurring the lines of what is a film and what is television so um if if you want to take that up and sort well, of yeah with that. you've just yeah, literally yeah. said what i think but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's I, maybe i mean we were talking about how some some directors some auteurs have those films careers where they have 10 12 films where you can see the path it's like you think like tarantino you can see the path but other other auteurs i guess things like martin scorsese they have these patches of of interconnecting films. So you, Scorsese, you've got his, his gangster movies that link together. You've got his period costume dramas that link together. You've got his rare comedies that link together. But they're not alongside each other. They, they seem jarring. But when you look at the whole career... So maybe we're looking at this, uh, uh, Steve McQueen's career, as this is a new patch of... Yeah, so in, if we look back in 30 years' time, film historians looking back on his life and his career, yeah. will, it'll all make sense to them. Yeah, we're I mean, living it now, and, and we're trying to fit his films into... Here's, here's the jigsaw piece that doesn't fit, you know. But, well, maybe, we're, maybe we're looking at ensemble, because Widows is more of an ensemble, despite it being overbalanced by Viola Davis. It was yeah. envisaged yeah. as an ensemble movie. And, and 12, 12 Years a Slave is a big cast movie, but it's not necessarily what you'd call an ensemble, because no. it's, it's, it's a very sort of sketchy movie. It moves from place to place. You know, we've got one character moving yeah. through the, 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 the story and being sort of battered around and taken to different places. Whereas here, yeah, it's very much a group of characters who all interconnect. Yeah. And maybe we're going to see that with the, the small acts filmed as well. Yeah, so. possibly. Maybe moving into his Robert Altman phase of his, uh, his auteur career. Who knows? But small acts is, is coming out very soon, 15th of November in, in the UK. Five films depicting five different uh, areas of the black experience, I guess. Um, yeah. And some interesting areas, I guess, that we have not seen yeah. on screen before. It's a, a range of different stories. I mean, there's one about Lover's Rock, which yeah. will be yeah. you know a very popular title in this, particularly in this country. I mean, we've sure. done we've shown films about Lovers Rock before, which what which was really a, a British invention. Yeah, it's a, a, a British spin-off yeah. from from the, the reggae scene. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in in the same way, you know, we've we've got things like Balti Curry, which are, are, are sort of based in Britain and they're sort of inspired by Britain. So uh, and Lovers Rock is our sort of contribution to reggae. You know, yeah, it's a very absolutely. British sort of. Uh, um, part of that scene, so. which hopefully you know, brings brings Steve back to the UK and focusing on something British. 
Yeah. Which is, I guess, for the first time in his career, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose you can connect Widows with that as well, in, in that it started out as a British TV series, it then got remade as an American show about 20 mm. years ago, and now you've got a British director with mixed nationality cast members in a, a, a version of the story that's set in the States. There we go. Um, we, we, but, found the yeah, there, so we found the link, Daryl. We found the link We got there in the end, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to mention one particular shot in Widows, which is just brilliant and which does connect with um, Steve's techniques that we've talked about, this idea of long takes, long-held shots and so on. There's an absolutely brilliant scene where um, uh, Colin Farrell plays an aspiring uh, politician who's the son of the character played by Robert Duval, who is just... Duval is almost as good as Viola Davis. Not that anyone is going to be, but uh, he, he almost gets there. And um, uh, Colin Farrell is is trying to, to get elected locally as, as a sort of Chicago politician. And there's a scene where he gives this speech that's absolutely filled with banal platitudes. And it's, it's, it's done, it's staged in a rundown part of the city and he gets into an argument with a journalist. And then he goes off in a huff and gets back into his limo with his, with his assistant. And McQueen then shoots this entire scene from outside the car. The camera's sort of positioned outside the car, looking onto the bonnet of the car, um, sort of looking at one of the headlights. And we hear what's happening inside the car, a conversation between the politician and his assistant, his PA. But what we see is if you focus on the background of the scene, the car drives, and it takes about two, three minutes, it drives from this terrible sort of run-down area which he's talking about, you know, sort of building up and elevating, but you know it's never going to happen. And the car drives and drives and drives, and gradually we see the buildings in the background and the houses becoming more and more well-to-do, more and more affluent, and then the car finally parks outside his political headquarters, which is like this ivy-covered mansion. And it's, it's just it's so understated... And I'm sure a lot of audiences don't even notice it because you're listening to what's going on and the focus, the main thing in the frame is the big black car. But if you look around the edges of the frame, you see the haves turning into the have-nots. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful shot. And that does, I think, that's the Steve McQueen of, of the previous three films. Yeah, we talked about Steve McQueen previously in his role as inspiration to filmmakers, do we believe he is inspiring a new generation of filmmakers? Yeah, um, in a sense, like I think he's one of of many. Um, but he, I think, because he's quite well established now, you know, yeah, I do think he is inspirational, and particularly with these um, with small acts and things and telling stories about the black British experience because it tends to be very focused on the um, African-American experience so it's good to sort of um, it's good that he's doing more work you know um, that, that that showcases more or, or tells more uh, black British um, talent and in doing so shows that you don't have to just do a, a, a gangster film to be, be successful. I think the fact that he's done small acts 
shows that he's still forging ahead. He's still doing what he wants to. And he's done these big budget movies in Hollywood with massive stars. Um, they are still very personal films, I think. I think we've emphasised that uh, mm. while we've been talking today. And the the massive budgets and working with Brad Pitt and working with Robert Duvall and so on hasn't spoiled him. You know, it's, it's, he's still Steve McQueen. He's still very much the, the person that he always was. And he's still doing the projects that he wants to do. And I think that in itself could well be an inspiration to the filmmakers that are coming up underneath him. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I think in any, anybody who is making films, the, the quality of Steve McQueen is an inspiration to new, to a new generation. It might. I be. think I think the fact that his new stuff is, although it's been shown as films in film festivals, it's being it's being presented to us in November as a TV series. Mm. Effectively, I think because that'll get to a wider audience, I think that in turn will be an inspiration in itself. Mm. Very good. So, Small Axe is on in 15th of November, and shall we draw to a conclusion our discussion on Steve McQueen there? Um, Cool, we should be back next month with another great topic. Uh, I want to thank the BFI and Quad for uh, supporting this podcast. Uh, Do check out our Facebook page and our website uh, for more information on our podcasts, including uh, our lengthy lists of uh, links that we make in these podcasts uh, to other movies. So please do check that out, and we will see you next month. Take care.